If you can remember before this global pandemic, there was this whole special counsel investigation. Of course, I'm talking about Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in our 2016 presidential election. And while many of the moving pieces of that investigation and its repercussions seemed largely over, actions inside the Justice Department in recent weeks have meant that, well, they're not exactly. Just then this afternoon, the Justice Department is dropping its criminal case against President Trump's former national security advisor, retired General Michael Flynn. Last week, the Justice Department, led by Attorney General William Barr, moved to drop charges against President Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Now, Flynn has been also seeking to undo his guilty plea since January, and newly released documents have given him the chance, according to his lawyers. As a refresher, Flynn, back in 2017, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his conversations with Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak. The new documents show the FBI preparing for the interview with Flynn and debating whether their goal was to, quote, get him to lie. Now, Flynn's lawyers call these documents stunning new evidence, while other legal experts say these documents merely show standard procedure for law enforcement officials when preparing for an interview. Now, back in 2017, not too long after that FBI interview, Trump fired Flynn for lying to the vice president about Flynn's conversations with Kislyak. Regardless, Trump has recently suggested he might pardon Michael Flynn. Well, it looks to me like uh, Michael Flynn would be exonerated based on everything I see. Not the judge, but I have a different type of power. A pardon that, of course, wouldn't be necessary if the Justice Department is able to drop the case against Flynn altogether. It turns out, as it often does in our complicated legal system, that dropping the charges against Flynn might not be so easy. A U.S. district judge earlier this week put the move on hold, making room for independent groups and legal experts to come in and argue against exonerating Flynn. And that same U.S. district judge even asked another judge, a retired one, to oppose the Justice Department in all of this. These legal battles bring our Justice Department into uncharted territory, with boundaries between the department and the president repeatedly tested. And, as these matters tend to go, this isn't the only news to emerge recently that shines a light on the relationship between federal law enforcement agencies and the president of the United States. But we'll get to that later. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Now, it's been a while since we talked about the world of the Russia investigation and the people involved with it on this show. So let's start with a refresher on Michael Flynn. Mike Flynn was a general and he ran the Defense Intelligence Agency. Before that, he had overseen military operations in places like Afghanistan. That's Devlin Barrett, the Post's national security reporter who focuses on law enforcement. He's covered the Justice Department for decades. Devlin explained that as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Michael Flynn clashed with other high-ranking officials. Critics inside the agency at the time said that Flynn's management style was chaotic, and his plans often met resistance from both superiors and subordinates. And so he was pushed out of that job by Obama. Now, that was in 2014, long before Donald Trump would run for president. When Trump's campaign ramped up in 2016, Flynn began advising Trump on foreign policy. That role eventually led Flynn to a spot as Trump's very first national security advisor. And just two days after he was sworn in in his new position, Flynn was interviewed by FBI agents. Mike Flynn was investigated for and ultimately pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI in 
an interview that took place essentially the first week of the Trump administration when two FBI agents went to the White House to question him about his conversations with the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak. Mike Flynn was also under investigation for his work on behalf of the Turkish government. And he wrote an op-ed basically in defense of the Turkish position. And so he, he also had legal exposure to that issue. But what happened in the course of the plea, and this is fairly common in plea deals, what they essentially did was they arranged, they cut a deal where he pled guilty to the essentially the lowest charge, which was a false statement to the FBI. And so that was designed to be the resolution of all the issues surrounding Mike Flynn. It's a criminal investigation, so not just Russia, but also the Turkey issue. And as the details of this investigation were emerging in in early 2017, it seemed that Flynn lied to the vice president about his contacts with the Russian ambassador. And then as a result of that, President Trump fired Michael Flynn, right? That's right. President Trump said he fired Mike Flynn because he lied to Vice President Pence. And, And that was the premise for firing Mike Flynn in February of 2017, when he'd only been the national security advisor for less than a month. It was the shortest tenured national security advisor in the history of that job. So you fast forward to late 2017, Mike Flynn enters a guilty plea to the charge of lying to the FBI, at which point Donald Trump emphasizes, well, I fired him for lying to begin with. And he shouldn't have lied, but it's, it's, it's a sad day, that kind of thing. And for some additional context to that, even though Trump fired Flynn at the time and and was vocal about having fired Flynn and the reasons why. What has Trump's relationship been with him like since then? Does Trump consider him this disgraced former White House official or or something else? So it's been a real intense evolution, let's say, in terms of both what the Trump White House has said about Flynn and what Flynn has said about Flynn. When the guilty plea was entered, Mike Flynn made public statements saying he wanted to do the right thing and was always interested in doing what was best for the country. So part of his deal to plead guilty was to cooperate with the Mueller investigation, and he did that. But what happened as time went on is that the Mueller investigation started winding down, and Flynn changed lawyers, and suddenly Flynn was very confrontational. His new lawyers were very confrontational to the whole process and basically sought out to unwind the plea. While that's going on, the president becomes a very vocal defender and advocate for Mike Flynn, basically asserting that the general, the retired general had been railroaded in some fashion and that this was part of uh, special counsel Robert Mueller's witch hunt, to use the president's language. But in regards to that initial plea, Flynn pleaded guilty to these charges, essentially admitting that he had in fact done the things that he was being accused of, specifically lying to the FBI. And was there evidence to support that that had occurred? Well, the main piece of evidence is his guilty plea. Now, a federal guilty plea is a very specific thing. Most good judges will make the defendant not just say, yes, I plead guilty, Your Honor. They'll make the defendant explain in their own language exactly how they committed the crime. And that certainly happened in Flynn's case. So you have Flynn saying he lied to the FBI. You have the FBI agent's document record of that conversation, basically laying out the way in which Flynn lied to the FBI. And you had the judge pressing Mike Flynn, not at one hearing, but several, that he was in fact certain that he had committed this crime. 
And, and that was sort of the, the, the history of this case up until very recently. So let's talk about what's happened pretty recently. All of this brings us to last week, last Thursday on the 7th, when the Justice Department at the time moved to drop these charges against Flynn. So first, can you just clarify what moving to drop the charges actually means in this case, since it seems the Justice Department can't just unilaterally decide to drop the charges? So think about the way the court system works. What we had as of a month ago, let's say, was Mike Flynn had pleaded guilty. Mike Flynn's lawyers were arguing to the court this plea should never have been entered. It was wrong because our client was set up by the FBI. Now, in that system, what would normally happen is the prosecutors would say, Your Honor, this person pled guilty to this crime. There's no reason for us to take it back. We don't know of any new evidence that would make us feel differently about it. But what happened here is very unusual in that the Justice Department said, over the objections of the actual line prosecutor who handled the case, actually, we believe this plea was, was wrongly entered we believe this case was wrongly pursued, and we are asking the judge to dismiss the, the case entirely because we no longer have confidence that we can get a guilty verdict out of this if we went to trial. That's a huge reversal, and it's something you almost never see in the criminal justice system, especially the federal criminal justice system, and especially in cases where there's been a guilty plea entered. So it's a remarkable reversal on the part of the Justice Department, and a lot of Folks inside and outside the Justice Department are very suspicious of the motives behind that reversal. At the end of the day, it's not solely the matter for the Justice Department to decide they don't want to pursue the case. If he hadn't pled guilty, if this whole issue was, hadn't been before a judge for years now, the Justice Department could just dismiss pending charges and it essentially would all go away. But that's not where we were. We were in a situation where a guilty plea had been entered. Mike Flynn had basically been judged convicted of, of, this, of this crime. And now the Justice Department is saying to the judge, you need to just toss this whole thing because the whole thing's invalid. And the judge has some authority here to either accept that advice or uh, reject it. What's Flynn's argument for why he pleaded guilty and has now seemingly changed his mind? Flynn's argument is that he assumed that there was a valid investigation into his conduct and others' conduct, and that he was guilty, essentially, of making a mistake, being, being wrong. To be honest, the new Flynn defense has never really attacked the core substance of the guilty plea, which is this, this question of the lie. They've really spent all their time and energy arguing. It doesn't matter what was said in the interview, because the the setup to the interview, the things that happened that created the interview were shady or, or suspect or corrupt. So they've made this argument, and, and now you see that the attorney general agrees that essentially the whole premise of the Flynn investigation was corrupt, and therefore it doesn't matter what he said in the interview. That's, that's the core of their argument. Even though Michael Flynn has admitted in court under oath three times before two different judges that he says he did lie to the FBI. Right. And so all the people who are suspicious of what Attorney General Barr did here argue, OK, well, if that's what Michael Flynn says, then, this, then the question is very simple. Was he lying when he entered the guilty plea or was he lying when he talked to the FBI? Because it has to be one or the other. That is a very common sense approach to the frankly, bizarre situation we find ourselves in legally. But surprise, surprise, the court system is actually fairly complicated. And there is a universe in which 
you could argue that there is not a legal basis on which to prove that he has to have lied in one or the other. But I think it's super interesting that by with pulling back the guilty plea or trying to pull back the guilty plea, what they're really doing is exposing this like inherent contradiction, which is, which is the lie? Which, is, which time was he not telling the truth, in the interview or in the guilty plea? And you've definitely touched on this, but how unusual is this, both for the Justice Department to seek to undo a guilty plea and for a defendant to sort of withdraw their own guilty plea? It's not that unusual for a defendant to try to withdraw their own guilty plea. It's rare, but it does happen. Oftentimes that happens because the cooperation deal falls apart. For example, in a sort of typical withdrawal of a guilty plea, a defendant will offer to cooperate and plead guilty. They'll enter the plea, they'll cooperate, and then something will go wrong. Maybe the the agents decide that the person isn't telling them everything they want to know, or that the person is just plain lying to them, or that the person doesn't actually know anything of real value. And suddenly that person is facing more prison time than they thought they might otherwise. This, for example, that's sort of roughly what happened in the case of Michael Cohen, the president's ex-lawyer, where the, where the terms of the deal kind of get, get sideways and suddenly no one's happy with the outcome. Now, in Michael Cohen's case, he ultimately stuck with the guilty plea and was sent to prison. But here you have another degree of, of weirdness to it all, which is that in this case, it's the prosecution itself that is saying, actually, we want to pull back the guilty plea. We think the process was corrupt from the start, and therefore the whole premise of this investigation was, was not kosher, and therefore the whole thing should be tossed. Now, what I personally find amazing, having covered federal law enforcement for decades now, this, this filing, this position by the Justice Department reads like a defense memo. It's not an unusual argument for defense lawyers to argue that the premise of an investigation was faulty. It's incredibly unusual for the Justice Department to argue it and to argue it for the purpose of negating a guilty plea. The, the Justice Department's general view of guilty pleas is like, once the guy admits it, that's it. The conversation's over. There's nothing more that needs to be said. And in this case, with this defendant, they are taking the opposite approach. So let's talk then about the context surrounding this unusual decision. In March, Trump tweeted that he was strongly considering a full pardon of Michael Flynn. Why was the president considering this when Trump is the person who fired Flynn back in 2017 for lying to the vice president? Well, I think you have to keep in mind there are, there are two ways to think of uh, political corruption cases, which this is essentially a political corruption case. One is the political realities of any investigation, and the other are the legal consequences and legal risks of any criminal investigation. And so I think what Trump did at the time that Flynn was fired and leading up to his guilty plea was basically just cut his ties with Mike Flynn and say, you know what, you're in trouble. I don't need that dragging me down politically. I want nothing to do to you. But what changed over the course of years is that Flynn became a kind of cause celeb on the right for those who hated the Mueller investigation, thought it was unfair, thought it was, in some cases, corrupt in their minds. And Flynn became a kind of poster boy for that view of the Mueller investigation. And as the president's supporters came to fairly vociferously uh, support Mike Flynn, Trump, too, came to a place publicly where he was dangling a pardon on a fairly regular basis. Now, what's interesting about what the Justice Department 
does is that if the judge upholds it, president, the president will never need to issue a pardon for Mike Flynn. The, the decision to, to try to undo the guilty plea by the Justice Department in some ways takes the Flynn pardon question, both the good politics and the bad politics of it, off the president's table. But all of which is a very long-winded way of saying, at the point when the president decides that he is going to start publicly advocating that Flynn was railroaded, it's now politically beneficial to him and his base to make that argument. And it wasn't, in the early days of the Flynn case, it wasn't always seen as politically beneficial to defend Mike Flynn publicly. Given those political dynamics, there have been concerns in the past raised about seeming attempts by the president to pressure the Justice Department to carry out some of his political wishes. What does your reporting show in this case? Well, I think what we don't know is what exactly were the conversations inside the Justice Department leading up to the decision to file the motion seeking to undo the guilty plea. We know that the political leadership at the Justice Department made this decision. We know that the career prosecutor involved in this case on the line level who'd who'd managed it for a long time disagreed with the decision. What we don't know is what sort of, what the precise nature of those conversations were that led up to that. And we don't know how uh, vociferous those back and forths were. We do have one other instance though that sort of gives us some suggestion as to how this might have gone down, which is the Roger Stone case. In the Roger Stone case, you saw a very similar thing in the sense that the line prosecutors made a certain sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone, a close friend of the president. The political leadership at, at the Justice Department overruled that and decided to essentially temper, water down that prison sentencing recommendation, and the line prosecutors left. And that was a very messy, nasty internal argument. Here, on the surface, it's, it's been a cleaner disagreement, but the disagreement is still very stark. And I think part of what remains to be understood and discovered, possibly through the court system, is exactly how intense was this disagreement, exactly how did that play out behind closed doors inside the Justice Department. And Devlin, believe it or not, we haven't even gotten to the part of this story where the U.S. District Judge said in an order Tuesday that the Justice Department's effort to drop this case was being put on hold to give people room to argue against it. So this is the among the latest developments in this story. Can you explain what the judge in this Michael Flynn case is essentially saying and whether or not it was what the Justice Department was expecting at this point? Right. So remember, the the setup we have coming into the week is that the prosecutors have filed this motion seeking to dismiss the case. It's up to the judge to decide what to do. So on Tuesday, the judge says, you know what, I am going to essentially allow outside voices to weigh in on what they think should be done here, but only partway. I think he's not looking for every Reddit poster to send him some <laughs> ideas. I think he's trying to target and, and put a call out to sort of legal thinkers, criminal justice experts to, to weigh in on this to some degree. And he's going to set up a schedule for folks to sort of weigh in with him. And, and look, it's a very strange situation in the court system because Norm, the court system, the entire court system, especially in the criminal justice world, is based on an adversarial process between the prosecutor and the defense. What we have now is a very unusual circumstance in which the prosecutor is basically adopting the arguments of the defense. And there's some reason to believe that there is not agreement 
among, among the world of prosecutors on this case that that was the right thing to do. So the judge is basically looking around for, uh, would anyone like to weigh in uh, now that we do not have a traditional adversarial court process? And that judge, Emmett Sullivan is his name, has now gone so far as to appoint another person, a retired judge, to oppose the Justice Department's efforts to drop the case. What is this new judge expected to do or, or to consider? Well, picking John Gleason is a super interesting choice on the judge's part. And and just the act of appointing someone outside the system to uh, play this role is an incredibly important moment in this process because, again, we're getting further and further into a sort of uncharted legal waters with this whole Flynn case. And so Judge Sullivan has decided that this retired judge, uh, a judge from New York named John Gleason, should basically come in and take on the position of arguing that the case should not be thrown out and Flynn may have committed perjury in his guilty plea. Again, that gets back to what I was saying about you either lied in your guilty plea or you lied in the interview. It's got to be one or the other. So you, you put all that together and what you have is a situation where the judge has now appointed John Gleason, an ex-judge, to take on the, the essentially the job of a potential prosecutor because clearly Judge Sullivan clearly thinks he doesn't currently have anyone performing the prosecutor's role in this case. What's really interesting about John Gleason, though, is that, one, he is a kind of legend within federal law enforcement in that he, as a young prosecutor, he was the person who put John Gotti away, John Gotti being the mob boss who killed a lot of people and evaded uh, law enforcement for a long time. And people thought he was untouchable, the Teflon Don, that sort of thing. And John Gleason was the one who sent him to prison for life. As a judge, John Gleason was also, is also a very interesting choice if you look at his legal career because Gleason came to believe that the federal sentencing and plea negotiation system that the Justice Department used was horrendously unfair to a lot of defendants, basically threatening them with so much prison time that they had no choice but to cop a guilty plea. And so it's a very interesting choice in that sense because obviously Flynn's whole argument here has been, you made me take this nonsense plea. You sh this was wrong. You should never have squeezed me that way. And Gleason does have some sort of professional history of being open to that kind of argument in a way that a lot of judges, frankly, aren't. So it, it's a super interesting choice. He, come, he brings a tremendous amount of reputational heft to this task because I think everyone in federal law enforcement thinks very highly of John Gleason. So it'll be very interesting to see which dis direction John Gleason decides to go with all this. And yet there is even more to this story. Trump's top intelligence advisor this week gave the Justice Department the names of Obama administration officials who unmasked Michael Flynn after he talked to the Russian ambassador back in 2016, as we've talked about earlier. First, can you explain what this means? What did these Obama administration officials do? Unmasking is this sort of goofy term for something that's fairly commonplace. It, and what it means is if you have, for example, an, an intercept, meaning uh, U.S. intelligence, the NSA, has picked up a conversation between two Russian officials talking about an American. The standard practice in U.S. intelligence is you essentially black out the name of the American because that's considered too close to the line of spying on 
Americans, which is obviously not allowed by the law. However, if, for example, two Russian officials are saying, oh, I talked to Bob, and Bob says he'll call me tomorrow with more information about what the president wants to do in Turkey. If, if you're a U.S. intelligence official and you see that, but the name Bob is blacked out, it might be very worthwhile and important to you to understand, well, who is that American who's going to talk to the Russians tomorrow about Turkey policy? And so you ask for that name to be unmasked so you can see it and understand better what they're talking about. So that's what it is in, the, in sort of the real world of intelligence, but it's being used in a very different sense in the political world right now. And in the political world, Republicans are using unmasking as a way of saying, look, the Obama administration officials leaked bad stuff about Trump people to, to punish them, to, to make them look bad, and to handicap them as they were starting a new administration. And in Mike Flynn's case, to eventually charge them with a crime. That's the Republican argument about why unmasking is bad. But you have to remember, there, there's a big leap between the act of unmasking, which is show me what that American's name is, and leaking, which is telling a reporter or someone what an American did. Those are two very different things, but I think, frankly, there's a lot of blurring of those two activities in this political conversation. Because to the Republicans, everything the Obama administration did related to intelligence is suspect and shady. And that's the argument they've been making for a long time. And they think on the unmasking conversation is essentially proof of that. So why were these names of these officials then turned over to the Justice Department so that they could be made public? You know, there's a little bit of a bureaucratic dance here. The names of the officials who did the unmaskings, the director of national intelligence gave them to the Justice Department. There's no real need for the DNI to give that to the Justice Department. The DNI has the authority to release those names if they want. And what ended up happening was, frankly, pretty expected, I think, by people who observe this process regularly, is that when the Justice Department didn't just hand over the names or make them public in some fashion, the DNI's office basically gave them to lawmakers on the Hill who were asking, and the lawmakers made the name public. So that, that's, again, when I talk about there being a political, an, a an important political component of all this, that, that's an obvious example in which the administration decides it wants its name, these names out there, and so they give it to lawmakers who agree, and then the lawmakers put the names out there. As we look at all of these pieces of the federal law enforcement environment right now and their relationship with the president, there is yet more this week. Trump expressed criticism of Christopher Wray, who's the director of the FBI. So what, what has Trump been criticizing Wray for? For a long time, Trump has been privately critical of Wray for what he thinks of as not being a forceful enough critic of Wray's predecessor, James Comey, who used to run the FBI and who Trump famously fired. We all remember so, James Comey. <laughs> right. So Trump has wanted the FBI director, we're told, to be more publicly critical of Comey, his deputy Andy McCabe, and others. And Ray has, while being generally, while making general statements about stuff that happened before I got here, we are fixing. That that's generally been his public statement on those on those sorts of questions. That has really frustrated and annoyed the president, we're told. And he's really wanted Ray to be more, to take more public shots at Comey. And Ray hasn't really wanted to do that. And so I think what you saw in the last, let's say, two weeks is the president's frustration on that boiling over a little. 
and, and, go, and him saying publicly some of the things he's been saying privately for, for a while. But we're also told, for what it's worth, that the president isn't likely to fire or threaten to fire uh, Ray anytime soon, in part because of the pandemic, in part because it's an election year. But I think what's jarring about all this is that when FBI director is appointed to a 10-year term and the way the president is talking, it seems like there is a non-zero chance that Ray's days could be numbered after the election which would, I think, alarm a lot of folks in the FBI and, and some folks in the Justice Department who deal with these issues. Because one of the things that everyone's been talking about since 2016 is that the Justice Department and the FBI at some point have to get back to sort what they call regular business, get away from the political crisis that they have been in in one form or another since the middle of 2016. And I think when a lot of people look at what the president says about Ray it revives the concerns that maybe the politics will never get out of the Justice Department, maybe the politics will never get out of the FBI. And that's alarming and depressing and frustrating to a lot of folks in federal law enforcement. Yeah, you really anticipated my next question to you, which was going to be, does Trump's recent comments reflect a sense of of permanent change at this point between the executive and law enforcement agencies? Might future presidents have more power to take aim at law enforcement leadership, sort of regardless of the optics? And do the political consequences look different than they once did of, of criticizing your FBI director, criticizing the heads of these law enforcement agencies? Yeah, absolutely. And And look, whether it's Congress or the White House, there have always been tensions and sometimes public criticism of the FBI or the Justice Department and questions about you know, political interference. I think what's really changed in the last few years and in some ways intensified is that that conversation is almost constant now. It's hard to go a week in Washington anymore without having some sort of very hyperactive political conversation about possible malfeasance, political malfeasance at the Justice Department or the FBI. And that is, I think, for the sort of institutional veterans, that is incredibly alarming and discouraging because it's not clear how you work back to a calmer, more rational place from where we are now. And certainly the Flynn case is is almost a textbook example of how incredibly politicized these cases have become and and these institutions have become in the current in the current time. And to that point, you and I have had many versions of this conversation before. How much of what we are seeing between the president and the attorney general, by that I mean an attorney general that is seemingly carrying out the wishes of the president, how much of that is standard operating procedure for this relationship versus pushing boundaries in an unprecedented way? I think it is pushing boundaries. I think you have a situation where there is now almost a baked-in suspicion of decisions that are made. And that doesn't mean there was never any suspicion before of certain decisions. But I think what's, what's striking to me about the current environment is almost everything that happens comes now, in, in, in a lot of cases, comes now with essentially a political audience for saying it's crooked or a political audience for saying finally, they're going after the corrupt ones. And that is, that is, that is just different. That is, that is just substantively different than how DOJ and FBI have historically functioned. Not to say that there weren't flashes and moments of this, but I think the constant and front burner nature of it now is just different than it used to be. 
And my last question for you, you've covered the Justice Department for a long time. Have any of these recent events revealed new vulnerabilities or flaws in our system and the way it operates specifically at the Justice Department? Well, it's an interesting question. I I think there is always a tension between the political part of government and the uh, law enforcement part of government. The, The mixing of those two things, as we've seen this year, and in, and in the last few years, I think is, is bad for everyone involved. I think it, it makes politics harder. I think it makes law enforcement harder. But it also seems to be a process that need, no one seems to be able to extricate themselves from. And I do think it's, it's changing how DOJ operates. And it, it's hard to see quite how DOJ goes back to sort of extricating itself from daily political fights on the Hill or daily political fights with the White House. The longer you do this, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is the longer you are in that situation, the longer DOJ and the FBI are in that situation of just constant political fighting, it strikes me that it's going to be harder and harder for them to get out of it. Devlin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? This story continues to develop, so for updates, please visit WashingtonPost.com, where you can read Devlin's work and the work of our other national security reporters. Thanks for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnik, with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.